Simple Beep, episode 52, Stocking Stuffers. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. You're back. I'm back. <laughs> the rumors of my death were greatly exaggerated. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, we're doing a little Christmas-themed show for this week, and the holidays are right around the corner as we're recording, and uh, we'll be even more around the corner as we release this episode on Christmas weekend. And we thought, what would be something that would be appropriate for uh, a holiday theme? A couple years ago, we did the uh, Merry Xmas virus from HyperCard as a Christmas theme. I don't think we had a Christmas episode last year, but in fine, I don't know, British TV tradition. (laughs) We thought we needed something a little Christmas themed. And so today we're going to talk about various classic Apple devices that could be construed as stocking stuffers, just based purely on their size. What could you uh, get the classic Mac nerd in your life and actually fit it in a sock on the (laughs) mantelpiece uh, (laughs) for, for Christmas Day? And so a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show is big Apple hardware, even in the portability episode, we were getting down into things that were like the size of power books. And we talk a lot about software, but Apple has made some very small products over the years. And some of them have been even significant. So uh, we're going to run through a few of those. And at the end of the show, uh, we'll actually bring up one thing that would be awesome if you could fit it into stocking now. (laughs) So let's start with um, some things related to photos. During the holidays, it's it's a great time to take photos of your family and family gatherings and maybe the snow falling if you're in the northern part of the northern hemisphere. Uh, and so the first photo-related stocking stuffer we'd like to talk about is Apple's first digital camera line, the Quick Take, the Quick Take cameras. There were basically three models of these cameras released in the mid-90s. And let's start with the original, the Quick Take 100. This was a digital camera released in February of 1994, and it sold at that time for a whopping $749, which Ed has written here is over $1,200, $1,240, adjusting for inflation. So you would have to be a very good boy or girl indeed to get a, a gift of that magnitude in your stocking. <laughs> And as was somewhat characteristic of the non-Macintosh hardware of that era, uh, primarily thinking about printers, which is probably a whole topic for another episode, the the guts of this camera weren't entirely designed and manufactured by Apple. Instead, the QuickTake 100 was kind of a white-labeled, redesigned Kodak camera. And we keep saying camera and digital camera. When you think about that, you might think of the kind of squat rectangular cameras that are dominated by a lens if it's an SLR or maybe just the little pocketable point and shoots. But the QuickTake 100 didn't really look like that kind of digital camera. Uh, I don't really know how to describe it. It's kind of like an extruded round rect, like in a, in a, long pancake shape almost. Right. Cause a lot of nineties digital cameras looked like the cheap point and shoot cameras that were their contemporaries or preceded them in the eighties that took regular 35 millimeter film. And, you know, you would just pop it in the back and it would spool the film through and just pass it right in front of the sensor. And then you would wind it back up and, and pop it back out and have it developed. But the quick take does not 
look like that at all because like you said the the you would hold it almost like a pair of binoculars but there would be only one eyepiece that you would look through it was about that size and shape and so it's kind of a strange camera device although there were cameras that preceded it that looked like that and i think they were they took different kinds of film formats like i think like someone in my family had like we didn't really use it in my life but there was a you know a, an old device in our family that took like film cartridges that were a different type of film. And they had these different like sort of squat form factors. And this is what the quick take looked like. And presumably it was just so that it would actually fit all of the optics and electronics that were necessary. Our family did not have a quick take. We had a, a kid targeted consumer camera made by Polaroid called the iZone. And this is even before the the catchy I prefix, which uh, true to Polaroid spat out uh, like instantly developed uh, photos. So this was not a digital camera, right? It was not a digital camera. You would put in little packs of like six to eight strips of uh, very small postage stamp sized photos. I'm looking at this on the Wikipedia page. It looks like you could get a photo developed on a Band-Aid. That, that's kind of what it was. And like the little part where the... Uh, where the like actual uh, bandage part of the bandaid is would be the film and the rest of it was just kind of material to help guide these stacks of photos through. Anyway, yeah, there were other devices, other camera devices that had a similar form factor, but I think especially looking back, the Quick Take 100 doesn't immediately come off as a digital camera. And also <laughs> being able to look back at the Quick Take knowing what pocketable digital standalone cameras are like today, uh, it's woefully underspecced. It had one megabyte of built-in flash, and it took photos at a 640 by 480 resolution. Which was pretty standard for the time. Yeah. However, that meant that you could only take about eight photos before having to transfer them to your Mac. And when you did, they would come over either as picked files, which were pretty standard for... It's like System 7 era. It's what the screenshots were saved as. Or a proprietary quick take format. And though it may have had built-in flash like a lot of Apple's uh, current products, it did not have a rechargeable battery. No, you get to drop in three double A's. And from what I remember from using quick takes, uh, I think at school, those batteries didn't last much longer than it took for you to shoot those eight photos. Apple loves to have three batteries in their products. Other companies go for two or four. Um, I've got one of those keyboards, the the Bluetooth keyboards that doesn't have the rechargeable battery at work, and it takes three batteries. It's very strange. Yeah. A little over a year later, in May 1995, Apple updated the Quick Take and uh, released it as the Quick Take 150. The price dropped $50 to $700, and the improvements were really just the different new kinds of photo formats it could save to. In addition to the proprietary QuickTake format and the standard picked, the QuickTake 150 could also shoot to bitmap, JPEG, TIFF, and the format PCX, which stood for Picture Exchange. Uh, and so, again, we talked about needing to frequently get these photos off of the camera, not only because it had limited storage, but because it wasn't the kind of camera where you could a live preview what you had just taken on a viewfinder, you had to get them onto a Mac first. And it did this over a serial cable. Now, if you had a quick take that was 
you know, one year or old or younger, and you said, oh man, I would really like to be able to shoot in JPEG, but I don't want to spend $700. It turns out Apple had a solution for you. Yeah. So this is a little bit interesting. Say you got your, uh, your quick take 100 in your stocking in Christmas of 1994, and you wanted a newer, better digital camera in Christmas of 1995, because you want the latest and greatest every single year. Um, Apple actually had a program where you could send in your QuickTake 100 to them and they would upgrade it to a QuickTake 100 plus. And to me, just for, for Christmas, this is, this reminds me of like the scene in the Grinch where he's taking the Christmas tree away. I was like, why are you taking our Christmas tree? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fix it. <laughs> the sensor doesn't sense on one side. <laughs> and so instead of $700, you could send away uh, to Apple for $200 and they would do what we'll, we'll link to the K-Base article that describes this process. They describe it as quote, a firmware upgrade only, which means something very different than what we think of now. Uh, especially if you think of firmware in the sense, like from the first few generations of the iPhone, where basically the system software was called firmware, the things that you get for your $200, like Basically, a different lens, different storage, um, an ability to uh, take different image image formats and image sizes, and uh, also some additional software that presumably they just stuck on a disk for you. But basically, they took they would replace the guts of the camera for you, and this was considered firmware only because they didn't replace like the entire thing, like the outer shell. Um, and necessarily like all the optics, like they've did some add-on optics. Um, but it's kind of interesting that this type of program would even exist given the way that we think of upgrading Apple products today. It's either a DIY effort or not at all. One more thing that you would get for that $200 firmware upgrade was a nice sticker on the camera body that designated as the new 100 plus model. And uh, so we'll put some more links to uh, photos of the very rare QuickTake 100 plus in the show notes. So that was May of 1995. And then there was one more giant revision of the QuickTake camera, February 1997, three years after the original. This was again at a lower price, $600. But more importantly, the entire camera was redesigned and it looks very much like a more traditional digital camera. Uh, this time, it was built by Fujifilm instead of uh, having Kodak designs and internals. And it had removable media. Uh, this time, it could be either two or a whopping four megabytes of storage, either doubling or quadrupling what the 100 series models had. But it came at a little bit of a cost where you needed now four AA batteries instead of that quirky Apple III. And the QuickTake 200 looks a little bit more like it. I mean, it's chunky camera but it looks a little bit more like we think of a camera and would probably fit better in a stocking. The QuickTake 100, you would have to have a uh, pretty large size novelty sock, which maybe you do for your Christmas stocking uh, to fit this big sandwich-shaped camera into it. One other thing about the QuickTake 200 is that the little grip on the right side of the camera as you're holding it looks to have um, some pebbled leather, at least in appearance. I don't know if it was actual leather, but uh, it's kind of funny to know how this the, the leather texture has had a rise and fall in Apple hardware and software over the years. 
Looks plastic, but classy plastic. Skeuomorphic plastic. Right. <laughs> so let's move down the timeline a few years, but stay on the theme of cameras. And this is one that would definitely fit in anybody's stocking, at least the device itself. Another one of Apple's standalone cameras, something that they don't really do anymore. Uh, the original EyeSight a name that lives on, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the original EyeSight device was this standalone cylinder, and it actually plugged in via FireWire, and its primary use was as essentially a webcam. There were other offerings in this area, like uh, Connectix had, what was it, the QuickCam? Uh, and several other cheap webcams were available. Although the question was, how are you going to plug them into your Mac? Um, USB standards and drivers not being uh, 100% there. But the uh, the EyeSight was introduced at WWDC in 2003, and uh, very much in the gift-giving spirit, uh, every single attendee got one for free. Uh, just reach under your seat. Yeah, a little Oprah moment. So the benefits of the EyeSight were that it had the uh, full VGA resolution at 30 frames per second video, and that then you could actually either just record that video locally or you could use it for actual video conferencing, video chat through iChat AV. And the the camera itself was literally just a cylinder with a FireWire plug in the end. So it was a very sleek little device. Uh, and then to actually use it, you would have to mount it somewhere. So there were three different mounts that it came with all three of these because they didn't presume which type of Mac you had that you were going to use it with. I think the most common was the one that clipped onto the top of a laptop lid. So it was, it was think, think of where the, oh, guess what? EyeSight camera <laughs> on, on a current Mac laptop is. Well, that was just plain, you know, that was just plain bezel there. And so in that place, you'd put a little plastic clip and pop in the EyeSight camera, and you'd be ready to do your, your video chat. But there were other mounts as well uh, that you could put on your desk for if you had a desktop Mac. And there was even one that was adhesive so that you could, like I guess, stick it to the side of various displays or the, or the eMac, uh, because they, they were encouraging these to be bundled and used in education settings as well. So I said that the device itself would fit neatly in your stocking, but actually, I uh, I gave eyesight cameras as a Christmas gift once upon a time. Um, it was when I was in college and wanted to stay in touch with people, and it was brand new technology. And you know, I was I was away at college, and not every laptop and certainly not every phone had built-in video conferencing capabilities. So bought a couple and, and gave them to friends and family, and, and we were able to use iChat and talk with each other. But the thing is that, no, it actually would not have fit it as a stocking stuffer because the iSight packaging, well, first of all, it had to have all those three different adapters in there. And the packaging itself uh, is a very familiar piece of Apple packaging. It's that cube-shaped box. I think it was exactly the same size and shape or very similar to the same size and shape that the original iPod came in. So again, a very sleek little device uh, that would easily fit inside of a stocking, but the whole packaging and everything before Apple really you know, started to whittle down the packaging and try to use as few materials as possible, uh, it came in that cube that was very aesthetically pleasing, but took up a, you know, it's probably eight inches on a side. Uh, it was a, it was a 
neat little gift package, but not not a stocking stuffer. Uh, Ed mentioned that the camera on Mac laptops can now be referred to as an eyesight. And this is how the eyesight name lives on. We know that Apple uh, is prone to kind of recycling some of their trademarked names. We've gotten the iBook to go from a piece of hardware, a laptop computer, to a storefront and uh, software. More recently, we've seen the control strip move from a control panel and piece of software to an area of the new touch bar. And in a similar way, the iSight name lives on to describe certain built-in cameras on Apple products. When the Intel iMacs and MacBook Pros were first released in January 2006, the built-in camera at their top bezel was indeed described as an iSight camera. And this continued with all built-in cameras on Mac hardware until the kind of like redesigned MacBook Air in the fall of 2010. And from that point on, the cameras in Mac bezels were referred to as FaceTime cameras uh, because FaceTime was released with the iPhone 4 in the middle of 2010. And then I guess Apple thought that eyesight was too good of a name to give up. I mean, it is a pretty good pun and fits in with all of their iDevice names. And so now the eyesight camera, somewhat confusingly, is actually the rear-facing camera on iOS devices, the iPhones and iPads. It's kind of interesting that this whole arc of Apple doing the quick take in 1994, and actually that being one of the first consumer digital cameras, despite its high price tag, to now being undisputably the uh, world's leading creator of cameras, um, albeit in a multi-purpose device. And they just keep, uh, you know, reusing names. And uh, there, there was a gap in the middle there. But now you can, uh, you could still wind up having a Apple camera and eyesight itself in your stocking if uh, you're lucky enough to have a new iPhone on the way. Or iPod Touch. <laughs> Never count out the iPod Touch. Oh, I, I already counted it out. <laughs> Speaking of iPods and stockings, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the iPod socks. Yes, these are some of my favorite Apple products of not quite the like mid-90s classic Mac era, but still long enough ago that it feels uh, worthy of mention on our show. People lament the death of Apple's whimsy. This is the height of Apple's whimsy. Yeah, that's a great point. They were released at the traditional fall music event in 2004 and were priced at a pack of six for $29. So in addition to keeping with uh, like the, the tradition of Apple whimsy, I remember a lot of the initial comments on these things were, uh, $5 a sock? Those are some expensive socks. But you know, that's Apple. <laughs> and as inflation goes along, I think my socks are almost that expensive. That's true. And, and you get more sock for what you're paying for <laughs> when the feet socks. Because these were itty-bitty. The original pack of six contained orange, green, pink, blue, purple, and gray socks. And for a while, I think this was commonly understood to be like the only colors of official iPod socks you could get. But recently, we learned, thanks to friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, and uh, also a friend of his and noted Newton enthusiast, Thomas Brand, that there was a special one-off red Apple iPod sock given to commemorate the opening of a Boston Apple store, a Boston Red Sock. 
I get it. It's not like Product Red and that thing. No, it's like the Boston Red Sox. Yep. <laughs> Got it. These iPod socks were sold for over eight years. Um, they were discontinued in September of 2012. And that was coincidentally, at least to me, after the iPhone 5 and a tall iPod Touch were released and started shipping. And I say coincidentally because uh, the iPod socks were, I think, primarily designed for like the classic sized iPods, uh, like the third generation with its four buttons, the photo, eventually the video and final classic shape. But they had a bunch of elastic in them and could definitely hold an iPod mini while those were out. Uh, not so much a Nano or a Shuffle, but also the first iPhones that had the three and a half inch screen. But when the iPhone 5 shipped with its four inch screen, uh, no matter how much you stretched the sock, uh, when it would like kind of spring back to its its stretched shape, there would still be a little of the iPhone 5 peeking out over the top. So I wonder if that's when Apple kind of abandoned its uh, socks because their one size fit all for the majority of its devices no longer held. And I know this because I still have an iPod sock and used it <laughs> as a case for, uh, I think, an iPhone 5S. And I recently tried to use it as a case for my 7. But at this point, it's just silly. Just one sock? What happened to the other five? Ah, because they were so expensive. I um, <laughs> I was the person who plunked down the $29 for them, but then uh, sold off the rest of the pack to friends. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So the official iPod socks are no longer for sale, but maybe you're the type of person who is very crafty. And uh, there's actually a guide that we'll link up in the show notes, how to make your own iPod sock cover. And perhaps if you were extremely crafty, you could uh, you could actually make one that would fit a modern iPhone, maybe even even a plus. Or you could just go to Etsy and search for iPhone sock cover, which returns 471 results. Oh my God. It's not, not too late, not too late to give as a gift <laughs> to the special person in your life who demands socks for their, their electronics. Yeah, we talk about whimsy, but it's clear that, that these silly socks were like very beloved. I count myself among those people. All right. So let, let's bring it back to actual electronics, but stick on the iPod. So believe it or not, Apple still sells iPods. Did you know this? I, you know, I have to be reminded every once in a while. Well, so if you wanted, you could walk into an Apple store today and buy someone an iPod Nano, a seventh generation iPod Nano, and put it in their stocking for this very Christmas. Unfortunately, though, they would be receiving a piece of electronics that was released in September of 2012. <laughs> Therefore, more than five years old. So the, the iPod Nano is really still hanging around when maybe it should be retired. One of the quirky things about the current iPod, quote, current iPod Nano is that it's running its own OS. So unlike the iPod Touch, which went fully over to iOS, and while there may have been some minor differences between the exact builds that were pushed to iPod Touches, iPhones, iPads, and the like, the iPod Nano is still running something that's not iOS, but is dressed up to kind of look like iOS. And so it's a very strange, uncanny valley type of device. It's also, because of its age, it's made to look like iOS 6, except with circular icons. Uh, and even on the home button, it has a, like a circular icon instead of the little, uh, little round rect, like used to be on the pre-touch ID 
home buttons on. So, so, so this, the more I describe the iPod Nano, the the worse I feel for it, and the fact that it's still still on sale. So maybe we should talk about some of the positives if you want to buy an iPod Nano, uh, kind of like a faux iPhone Nano in 2016. For one thing, it has a headphone jack. A lot of people are still a little angry about the removal of the headphone jack in the iPhone 7 series. Uh, and as we record this, AirPods have been uh, on sale to the mass public for, I don't know, 12 hours. <laughs> Unfortunately, the iPod Nano will not work with AirPods despite having Bluetooth built in. That's more for, I guess, pumping tunes to your car or a portable Bluetooth speaker. And AirPods are not likely to show up in many people's stockings, despite the fact that some people are, are getting them because you had to be within, what, like the first hour to get them to ship before Christmas, and now they're out to February. The iPod Nano also has an FM radio, not AM, so you, you'll have to get your sports and talk elsewhere, but a real FM radio. And actually, it's one of the reasons it has a headphone jack, because the headphone wires are the FM radio antenna. It will not work if there's no headphones plugged in. Like any any wired headphones, or is it specifically ones that came with it? I think any wired headphones work. It just uses like the electrical properties of there is some wire there. Yeah, I remember I had a tape Walkman like way long ago that also had a built-in radio, and it used the same thing. And it didn't come with headphones, so it was like any headphones you plug in will will do the trick. So this is this is like someone like you know in the analog TV days where you didn't have like an official like rabbit ears antenna you just like you just like plugged a clothes hanger into the back of your TV and and hope for the best. Yeah. And there are some other software features in the FM radio like faux app running on iPod OS. One of them is the ability to quote live pause the radio and leave it paused for up to 15 minutes and then unpause it and kind of play the time-shifted radio rather than going back to tuning in live. Another thing is that if you have, it says for supported stations, which I don't know what the the classification is there, but I do know that there are like some stations that broadcast their like call signal and the currently playing uh, song and artist over the airwaves. So I assume it's working in with something like that. You can also tag songs as they're being tuned in, streamed over the radio on your iPod Nano. And the next time you go and plug it in to sync over iTunes, it'll pop up those tags in the iTunes store and suggest that you buy those songs for $129 or whatever. This is like a very terrible feature on my car, which has the Microsoft Sync Media Hub, which when you're listening to the radio, there's this thing that appears on the screen that says, ALERT! in all capitals. And what that is, is it's a button that if you push it, it will tell you like the next time that that song is being played on a ra another radio station. Except it looks like something is wrong. E a, wrong with your car, or like B, there's like a, a tornado coming for you. <laughs> oh, God. Well, the, the more that you describe of the iPod Nano features, um, the more that I think that if you get one in your stocking, you probably were not very good this year, or you are a diehard collector of iPod hardware. That's true. Uh, just to round out its features and try and give it any saving grace, it also has a pedometer, though it's like a simulated pedometer through an accelerometer. It's no M7 or M8, M9 
class chip for counting steps. Uh, I remember back, I think all the way back to the original iPod Nano, Apple had their partnership with Nike in the Nike Plus system, but you had to buy a little Bluetooth dongle and stick it into the 30-pin connector. That is all built into the iPod Nano's hardware. So you can do your Nike Plus shoes if you still have those, or just use the Nike Plus Fitness, again, quote-unquote, app on the iPod Nano and its iPod OS. Well, that might actually look better than that Nike Plus Apple Watch with all of its weird, weird green holes and whatever it's got. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what what if uh, what are some things that you could uh, get that would be classic Mac themed that would be uh, would be coal in your stocking? <laughs> we have a we have a whole section here of things that you know uh, you could theoretically even get these now and give them to someone, and it would be kind of a, a terrible prank or an indication that. Uh, you were not very pleased with them. Um, so <laughs> this is kind of funny. When we were talking about the Quick Takes, we didn't mention that the uh, Quick Take 200 actually had some removable media. And so you could get either a two or four megabyte smart media card, a format that I forgot its existence. Today, Fast forward to 2016, I was doing some Christmas shopping and I don't think this will be any any spoilers, um, but I was buying a gift that would make sense to have some removable media that would go with it. And so to my Amazon order, I put as an add-on item a 16 gigabyte SD card for $4 and change. And it's an Amazon add-on item, which means that like they will not even ship it to you <laughs> unless you have purchased the requisite amount of other stuff. That's like enough stuff in a box that it makes sense for us to take this off the warehouse shelf and send it to you. Uh, so that's how far we've come with storage is that it's basically free and Amazon is not even willing to send it to you as a standalone item uh, unless you pay additional shipping on it. But but here's the weird thing. So I was thinking, OK, what are some classic Mac themed storage that you could get? How about some how about some good old zip disks? Well, here's the most bizarre thing. You can buy a single zip disk on Amazon.com as an add-on item. <laughs> um, so if the person that you were buying gifts for you didn't actually like, you could get them a zip disk, which is 100 megabytes and probably can't be read by anything that they own today uh, because they probably had a SCSI zip drive in 1997. Or instead, for actually, let's see, I'm looking at Amazon... Less, no, a dollar more, you could get them a 16 gigabyte SD card, which will probably serve them some good in the future. I love how the the title of the zip disk item on Amazon's listing includes the parenthetical discontinued by manufacturer. Well, truth in advertising. <laughs> yeah. So what about if you wanted to get someone something that was storage related, but was actually useful? Um, and I actually got these as a gift. I think it was a birthday gift, not a Christmas gift, a while ago when we started doing this show. And I have used these pretty much every episode when we were recording. Uh, I have a bunch of coasters that are that look exactly like floppy disks. So there are these silicone coasters, and um, they came in like a six-pack with different colors. And they have labels. You can actually write on the labels with a marker. And uh, and they're great. I'm using one right now, and they have a very satisfying uh, satisfying sound if you rustle them back and forth. Um, so I actually recommend these. These would be a fantastic stocking stuffer for someone who is uh, who loves 
classic technology stuff. Um, because, um, in terms of, you know, their use as an object, they're more useful than a floppy disk. Uh, and they, and they look just like them. Uh, in fact, they have fooled people, um, both like in photos and in real life. They're like, Ed, are you using real floppy disks as coasters? No, 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 no. Like pick one up. And, uh, oh, and the great thing is they're three and a half inch floppies, but because they're silicon, they're actually floppy. So (laughs) total upgrade over a real three and a half inch floppy disk. We should end this section with something uh, produced by Apple just to stay authentic. So what's something that's kind of useless in today's uh, modern age, but is a piece of Apple hardware and would definitely fit in a stocking? Well, there is a USB 56K modem (laughs) made by Apple, kind of, well, uh, its Wikipedia page says uh, manufactured by Motorola, but, you know, it's, it's Apple branded. It's a stark Apple white piece of hardware. It looks like it's about the size of a cigarette lighter with a very short USB cable coming off of it. It's about the size of your average dongle. It, yeah, it really looks just like a like a Thunderbolt or Ethernet dongle. Um, but it's got a full 56K modem inside just in case you have like a certain vintage of Mac that uh, was produced ap- after they stopped having modems built in. But before, I think like Lion or OS, what, 10.7. Um so if you have something in in that range of machine and you maybe want to get on some old dial-up or send a fax, the Apple USB modem is uh, just what you're looking for. There was once a time when a modem was a great Christmas gift. In fact, again, these are all my stories of the tech, tech gifts that my family has actually given to each other in the past. When I was, I don't know, in fifth or sixth grade, we got a 56K modem to replace our 14.4 modem for Christmas. And I remember that uh, it was towards the end of Christmas Day, and my parents were going to go take my grandmother back to her house. Uh, she lived about an hour away, so they were going to be gone for like two hours. And I set up the modem, got it all working, and I had downloaded like 20 megabytes of data in the time that they were gone because I was in the brave new world of of blazing fast 56k modems and it was it was a fantastic christmas present in 1996 uh and not so much in 2016 and uh ed you put a a nice little footnote here on on this piece that i did forget but you wrote don't forget that the original ufo airport base stations also had built-in modems and also would fit in the stocking Maybe wedged in a little bit. <laughs> but they're like pretty cute little pieces of hardware. I I had forgotten that they had 56K modems built in. And, and now I like can't imagine a world where in the age of wireless networking, it was worth it to get your like 5K a second max over a wireless connection. But, you know, if you, if you had to, you had to. Yeah, just today I disconnected my phone from my the wireless network at work because it was acting up and... LTE was faster. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, definitely a thing of the past. Now we, we're nearing the end of the show, but we have to mention one thing of the future that came across the internet this week. And oh man, what a great Christmas gift. Although uh, we'll have to think of it. It will be a Christmas gift only in concept at the moment because it's pretty much only in pre-production unless you're in Hong Kong. And this is a little guy called the Mackinbot. 
And I cannot even begin to describe how excited I am <laughs> that this product exists in the world. The Macinbot is a little anthropomorphic figurine of a Macintosh classic with arms, legs, a mouse, and a font suitcase that he can carry around in his little, like, Lego man arms. And it's this, they bill it as a collectible figurine, and it would be a perfect stocking stuffer if their timing had just been a little bit better. But I'm sure that they're going to be producing these for Christmas 2017 as well. And as we'll link to, we'll link to their website. And they say that this guy is just the first of many, um, that they have plans of creating an entire Mackinbot family. This is Mackinbot classic. He says, hello. Yeah, this, this looks so good. Uh, I'm a little worried Apple might bring the hammer down on them because, uh, they've got a, a variation on the original six colors. Apple, like the attention to detail is very good. They've got a variation on the Apple on the front of this and, the name of the toy, the Mackinbot Classic, is in that like perfect for the time period, uh, like narrow Garamond font that Apple used. Um, and another detail I love is the the little Lego legs and arms are detachable. So if you do want it to just kind of be like a little miniature of the Mac Classic on your desk, you can do that too. And it doesn't even leave like holes for where they attach. I think it's all magnetic. And yeah, the font suitcase is such a brilliant little pun. That's a little suitcase that's like designed after the icon from that era. Oh, I love this. Yeah, I want one of these for Christmas, but I'm not going to get one. Next year. Next year. Speaking of next year, so this is uh, obviously the year is coming to an end. So this is our last episode of 2016, uh, but we're already looking ahead to 2017. We've got things that are in the works. And one of the things that we're looking ahead to in 2017 is of course that there will be some big Apple milestone anniversaries coming up in 2017. Yeah. Like for example, the Dynamac, arguably the first Macintosh clone, as well as the first portable Mac will be turning 30. I, I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that either. I would literally went to everymac.com, clicked 1987. Uh, the Macintosh two is there. My beloved Macintosh two the non-30 SE, the, the plain SE, and the Dynamac were the three models introduced in 1987. So maybe we'll have to dig into that because uh, we, we, we need to know more. There are some other anniversaries too, of course, uh, some more relevant ones. Oh yeah, some bigger ones. Like uh, I was thinking more along the lines of 20th anniversaries. So 20th anniversaries of things that happened in 1997. We have the anniversary of the first G3s and the release of Mac OS 8, which is a, a big turning point uh, in Apple's history. Just just leading up towards towards the iMac. Right. And probably the biggest anniversary coming up in 2017 for Apple is that, believe it or not, the iPhone is going to turn 10 years old in 2017. So, man, I think <laughs> this is a little bit scary. We, don't, we, we try to focus on classic Mac stuff on Simple Beep, but we kind of have our, like our, our cutoff thresholds, like how, how far back do we have to go to consider something, consider something classic? And there's actually there's a list of, giant list on Apple's website in the support area of like what are vintage and obsolete products and I think one of the ones that is listed as now obsolete is the original iPhone. It's the only 
iPhone model that is, quote, obsolete worldwide. So yeah, iPhone joins the ranks of, of things that we might actually seriously talk about on this year's show. <laughs> of course, if there are any other topics that you would like to hear us talk about, uh, or any stories that you would like to share of uh, Mac products or Apple products that perhaps you received in a Christmas stocking once upon a time, you can get in touch with us the usual ways. You can contact us through our website, simplebeep.com, or you can find the show on Twitter at simple underscore beep. We've mentioned our show notes, which you can find in your podcast player app or at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us individually on Twitter, we're there too. I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at Ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Merry Christmas, and we'll see you in the new year.